Um, yeah, I mean, there'll be plenty of times where somebody will be like, well, should I implement version A of this or version B? And my response is, which is easiest? <laughs> and they're like, well, version B is easier. I'm like, just do version B first. That's the only reason is because it's easier. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we made games. Today, Adam Saltzman is talking to Manvera Hare, an independent game designer who has previously worked for Raven Software and BioWare. Manvera is best known for his work on Mass Effect 3 and Mass Effect Andromeda. Uh, thank you so much for making time to do this, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Uh, my name is Manvir Hare. I'm a gameplay designer at Bioware Montreal, currently working on Mass Effect Andromeda. Um, before that, I was started my career out as a programming intern at Big Huge Games, working on uh, Rise of Legends and uh, RTS. Uh, shortly thereafter, I started a full-time programming gameplay programming position at Raven Software, uh, where I worked on Wolfenstein. Um, and then later I moved into, during that project, I moved from gameplay programming to gameplay design full-time. Um, and then I became lead designer there on an unannounced movie project that later got canceled. Um, after that cancellation, I moved over to Bioware, um, took a senior design uh, position on Mass Effect 3, and I've been on the Mass Effect franchise ever since. I guess the first thing I want to ask you about is um, sort of game design as a programmer. Because uh, I originally come from more of a programming background and got into game design later. Um, and I'm curious, like, were you doing game design kind of during as a pro- like do, doing game design, quote unquote, non-professionally while you were a programmer? And also, do you feel like, you know, being a having a background in programming is helpful or harmful or both? Um, so I was at Raven. There were no game designers when I started there. Um, oh. <laughs> there were level designers. There were like scripters for the level designers. Um, there was a creative director. There were gameplay um, programmers. So effectively, oh, yeah. the job of a gameplay programmer was to come up with the ideas of the design. So, for example, I was in charge of weapons. Um, and figure out the design of the weapons and then implement it through code as well. So it was kind of a hybrid role where you're doing half game design and half programming, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, but there were problems with that system, which is there was no hierarching, like, systemic design of the game. There were levels in the things, but nobody was looking at the defeats, and actually that's probably one of the bigger problems that that game had. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I think, like, didn't... I feel like Looking Glass was sort of, like a studio that was running in a similar... Maybe that's just how things were done back then. Yeah, I do think this this was a, a remnant of the way things happened in the late 80s and like 90s. Mm. Um, Element and Raven certainly had its heyday, I would say, personally. In the 90s, I grew up playing uh, a lot of Raven's games, the Heretic Hexen series, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Soldier of Fortune and Jedi Knight 2 uh, were wonderful games. Um, and I would say that basically scaling up into what are now a couple hundred to 500 to, in some cases, thousand-person teams 
um, where there's a lot of specialization of a lot more roles was something that we did not do particularly well at that period of time. Um, yeah. And that left holes. For me, luckily, early in my career, I was able to take advantage of that and kind of move from programming to design where I always wanted to be, uh, and also then eventually to a lead design position uh, at Raven, which was, you know, being three, four years in your career and being a lead is, I mean, maybe that's not the best thing I could have done in terms of, like, I probably had a lot more learning to do, I still do, but uh, it, it meant, it was pretty interesting to just to get, get the reins for a moment and try to guide things in the way that you felt were best. Yeah. Did you have a sense, I'm curious, did you have a sense then that that top-down overview thing was a problem or is that more of a hindsight thing? Yeah, I know. I totally could see it happening. I would say that Wolfenstein was the project that taught me all the things not to do in a game video game development. Um, <laughs> and I'm actually somewhat thankful for that. Yeah. Um, I've seen people whose first game was like Mass Effect 3. I'm just looking at them and I'm like, you have no idea how bad it can get or like <laughs> what we have to look out for. Like this is simple. Uh, simple comparatively. Like it's not a simple thing. But um, yeah, yeah I, I, I saw a lot of mismanagement um, or decision making at the top. You know, you're dealing with id software and uh, Activision plus yourself. So you've got many different kind of chefs in the kitchen um, situations and, and you kind of learn about uh, what a high-level vision is and how executing on that can be versus what it's like to kind of meander around and not have a clear vision or a flavor of the month's vision. Was there a thing, Was there is there like a particular thing that stands out from them where you're like, oh, I wish we like, you know, if the stars had aligned or we had the extra thing, we could have done this, like, there could have been this cool thing or was it just like there's, uh, it was just kind of like too much, too long, too many cooks? Uh, it was definitely too much, too long, too many cooks. So, I mean, the, the wish would have been that, like, oh, I wish that we internally were just able to, have, like, be masters of our own destiny. And as a as a creative, I guess I always, I'm always going to feel that way, right? I would <laughs> right. I would always rather not to have to listen to a publisher or anybody else. Not that I don't have anything useful to say, but I'm a stubborn creative. So, like, I always want it to be my vision or our vision, mm-hmm. uh, as it is often in game design. Um so I would say that that having um, more basically autonomy to develop our own vision and not have to second guess it or make sure it fits certain parameters, um, you know, would have been nice. And I think we could have delivered a much better product. Um, I'm proud of what we delivered with that game, even though it's you know um, an average shooter because that game could have and should have been an awful shooter, and <laughs> the collective effort of Many of us working 60, 80, 100 hour weeks for a year straight um, to kind of pull that out of the fire and make only make it, you know, an average or, or a serviceable or somewhat fun game. Yeah, I always feel like the um, uh, people talk about it in movies sometimes, but there's always this idea of like, you know, wouldn't it like how come there aren't awards for the things that turned out fine, but should have been disasters right like because so there was so much work where if you like if everything was you know all uh all the pieces come together at the right time and everybody's working together and there's this great synergy and you make a great product and it's like well yeah you're in a great <laughs> you're in such a good environment uh but like somehow putting out something that you feel good about in an environment where there's more adversity 
I always feel like that should be, I don't know how you give a prize for that, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure like there's a thousand games that have that story behind them, right? Like I think most, most games do. If it's true that only like 20% or less than 20% of the games are commercially and financially successful and critically successful, then, you know, most people are working on failing things or things that are barely breaking even or whatever. Um, you know, Wolfenstein certainly was not a commercial success. Like I, I'm pretty sure that was a loss. Like, like we all knew that was a loss, uh, well before it was going to come out, hmm. just given the four plus year development cycle. Um, but sometimes there's other reasons that you make a game, such as keeping relationships open for the publisher with other teams and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Huh. So I w- I'm curious if there's like, um, so from Raven, you went over to Bioware and worked on, you started on Mass Effect 3? That's correct. Like, when you went in there, I'm like, different organization, right? I'm guessing, was it a bigger team then? Uh, yeah, it was a bigger team, though. I was working in the Montreal office, and we were only like 30 in the Montreal office, but we were working with the Edmonton team. So there was a bigger total team, but I only saw a small part of it in person, and the rest was kind of... Uh, Skype, you know, and all, like online chat. Oh man, is that uh, how was that? Because like um, we do that, but we're like we have like three people. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, I would say I was the only gameplay designer, uh, not in Edmonton, and that was difficult. I sometimes felt like I was on an island, and there's certain times or certain things I didn't do as well as I could have because sometimes I thrive or need to, like the ability to just turn to my side and throw an idea by somebody. Yeah. I don't even necessarily need them to respond. I need to kind of talk myself through it sometimes or have a like a you know a bouncing board. Um, and I find mm-hmm. other gameplay designers or programmers, etc., are really good at that. Um, but on Mass 3, I didn't really have that because we had mostly programmers doing online stuff. Um, and then all the designers were in Edmonton. And it, it's not always the same. You don't want to interrupt somebody. It's kind of just one of those like, hey, what do you think about this? Uh, sort of <laughs> yeah. Thing. Uh, I would say to this day, I'm still that kind of person. Like, I'll walk over to, now that we have a bunch of designers uh, in Montreal, um, I'll walk over and just be like, hey, what do you, I'm thinking about this idea, guys. What do you What do you think about this? Is this ridiculous? Am I nuts? Or should I just try it? Um, and it just helps me kind of center the idea in my head or talk through some of the details that I might need to talk through that I don't have in my brain yet. Yeah, I sometimes feel like it's a, almost like the act of trying to communicate the thing that's in your head is just that process of like, I have to put the mess into words for yeah. another human who's not here and like just that somehow defining or encapsulating the problem. Yeah, so like, yeah, I usually want to know a couple things. One, do I even know what I'm thinking about? Like, because <laughs> sometimes it's a scramble of loose ideas that aren't quite connected. You feel like there's something there, but you're not quite sure. So can I explain it to somebody? Two, can I get them excited about it? Like, I think part of the job of a, a gameplay designer uh, or designers in general um, is to be a salesman to an extent. And that is to mm. sell your ideas um, and try to see uh, if other people are willing to buy them. Um, especially in AAA where you are trying to hit certain amounts of mass market. Um, you know, you can be niche in certain type ways in AAA. There's a time and a place for it, but you do need to be cognizant of your job is to sell millions of units of a, of a game, uh, you know, and make it as best as possible. Um, and then the third part is, 
and the other people, hopefully you have good people that you're talking to, can they already poke holes in it or find angles that you haven't thought through so that you can go back and think through them better um, and come out with a more holistic design? That way, when you present it to your lead or the executive team or whoever it may be, it is a much more fully fleshed idea than it was the off-the-cuff running in your brain as you were talking uh, idea. Yeah, you've had a chance then to sort of like hopefully encounter most of the big obvious problems or counter arguments or what ifs. I'm guessing a part of like the process when you were at Raven was like, I have an idea, write some code. Here is the idea. Uh, is that like, is that a part of the your process at all anymore? Can it be? Um, it can be like, there's times where I've come up with ideas that seemed a little bit weird for little features. And I just stayed late on a Friday and prototyped it. And on Monday I showed it to people. Um, I was like, what do you think about something like this? Um, and in fact, once I was working on the, uh, Omega DLC, um, and I was just kind of, I had to come up with a new power for Nyrene, who is the female Turian character in the game and each character has their own unique powers and I thought hey it would be kind of cool if she had this like bubble shield that she could do I don't know why you would use it on her that often but it would be kind of cool and if you got it it'd be really cool um and I decided just stayed late and prototyped it and was able to show it to some people the next day or on the Monday I think it was um and got enough positive response that it was like okay this is worth investigating more time into. Like, well, let me find better VFX, and let me find better sounds, and let me do a few more things. And then I was able to start showing the management, who, uh, like my lead, my, my lead designer and everything, um, who were then able to ask tough questions, and I had some answers for them. Yeah. Um, and to their credit, they weren't 100% sold, but neither was I. Um, but I gave a kind of compelling reason why I thought it was the right thing to do, given staffing situation we had, the other things that we had to do that were more costly, maybe more risky. And I was like, I think this works. I think this is cool and original. We haven't done this before. Um, and in the worst case, like, if it's not that useful, players will see that the AI automatically do it, and that'll be kind of cool. I know when we're um, pitching stuff here internally, we get a lot of we switched over to this like sort of model of pitching that is mostly like, okay, here's an idea. And like, it's, it's a really weird cause it does feel like salesmanship to some degree, but it's this really weird version of it where like, there's a, there's like an impartiality to the thing that you made. Like it can't just be like, I like this a lot. Like we always, I feel like there's like a lot of pressure out of respect for the rest of the team to position it as like, Hey, you know how we had these four problems? I think if we do this one cool thing, they all go away. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, I think as a designer, you're always going to solve those, those, those four problems with one, uh, if you can. Um, I, I think every designer has a good amount of ego. I think you need to have some amount of ego to, to be a designer. But knowing when to check it or put it aside or listen or um, meld your idea with somebody else uh, is always an important time. The big thing for me is I would rather say something completely stupid that's awful and have someone tell me that it's awful and, it, and and I'm okay with that. And the reason is, is in a brainstorming session or something like that, 
I feel like well, that could have spurred somebody else to have a better idea or it could even spur somebody else's idea that then leads to me having a better idea. So sometimes these can be starting points. Um, yeah. And or, so or, like, like, I, I don't pressure myself for every idea to be great or on the like, like needs to make it into the game. I'd rather just have an idea be a starting point for maybe where we can go. And then we start talking about angles and we kind of let the, the brainstorming or natural conversation go from there. Yeah. Oh man. That's like, my favorite thing is like, like you get everybody there for me and you're like, I'm about to propose to you the worst thing, yep. but it does solve these three things. So your guys, what we're going to do together is come up with something that's not this, that does the same things. Because if we can find that, then like, then we're in a good place. Yeah, I've had many a meeting where someone starts their conversation with, I'm going to say something really, really scary and dumb, and I don't even like it. But and then they <laughs> say their idea. Um, and I think being comfortable with that is actually a skill or um, maybe a sign of a more seasoned designer. I've seen younger designers maybe always feel like they have to have everything perfect. And yeah, everything you... And design is messy and iterative to me. So to me, it's like, what's the smallest piece that we can do or talk about? If the smallest piece is easier to do than it is to talk about, then I would rather just put it in the game quickly, show you, and then talk about an iteration from there or just cut it from there. Um, Because, like, if that takes less time than arguing about it, then just do it. Um, Conversely, if it's a big feature you're talking about, okay, well, we need to have all our ducks in a row, and this is something that's going to involve a lot of other departments. So let's make sure we find the best possible solution the first time. Yeah, it's like building a birdhouse versus like building an apartment building. Yeah, and like you do both, right? Design all the time. So I think it's so important to know when you're doing the small thing and when you're doing the large buildings. Yeah, we had, I uh, learned a lot of this the hard way. <laughs> like, I've been doing this for like 10 years, but like in the last 12 months, a bunch of this stuff like really sunk in. I think just because of the scale, the relative scale of the work we're doing now, where I don't know. I wasn't in that headspace. Uh, and then we had like, there was a couple of like, uh, they weren't like serious incidents, but they were like moments of design where it was like, why, why are we, it's been two hours. We could have made the feature already and then objectively been able to tell if it gets us closer to our goal or not. And instead we're still like, you know, sort of making these weird metaphysical arguments about the idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there'll be plenty of times where someone will be like, well, should I implement version A of this or version B? And my response is, which is easiest? <laughs> and they're like, well, version B is easier. I'm like, just do version B first. That's the only reason is because it's easier. Just do that one first. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if they're within the same like scale generally, go ahead and do the easiest thing, the thing that your engine or your code already kind of supports, and go from there. Yeah. Well, I feel like so many good designers can, like, if they have... Like comparing two things on paper is so weird, and if you can just like play them in the level, there's no like you have the time to even have an argument anymore. Yeah, and I'm very much a, I want to be in game. I want to be in engine. I'm hands on. I work in engine every day. Uh, you know, um, there is a role for paper design and spreadsheet design and stuff like that. I don't want to diminish people who do that. Yeah, but I don't. But I don't believe in outside of certain special specialty roles and certain types of games. That there's a role only for that, where that should just be what you're completely doing for pretty much all the time. <laughs> yeah. I believe you should be in the guts, getting dirty. Um, so for me, like 
yeah, just getting in there, doing the thing, looking at it together, making an iteration, like that's the most interesting thing. And then, you know, seven iterations later, when you finally figured it all out, like, okay, yeah, we we got, we found the right thing. This is a, uh, now we can take this thing and, you know, make it sexy for shipping, but like we have the prototype that works and has the mechanics that we want. And we don't need any extra support after because we've already gotten it. Yeah. Can you remember a time when it was, um, like difficult to pitch an idea that you knew was bad? Like, did it, was that something, is that something that you feel like was just, I don't know. I'm, I'm always curious of that. Like, cause I, cause I see it too, especially in, um, in younger designers. And I'm always curious, like, how do you get people to this place where you're walking this funny line between like passion about the design and passion about the idea and this sort of, um, clinical dispassionate, uh, view of whether or not a given idea solves a problem. Right. Um, I've been dealing with stuff like the simplest version I would say would be something as simple as the controller mapping for on console because usually you don't have enough buttons on the console for all the little things that you want to do in game. So you're overloading. Um, the overloading leads to problems where the player enters cover when they didn't mean to enter cover or they, you know, swap weapons when they meant to reload or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, you start trying to go, well, are there things we can remove from the game that would reduce the controller complexity? Are there different ways to introduce some of those controller complexity without using as many buttons? Are there, and usually the, there isn't a perfect answer. Usually it's, well, what's, I kind of call it, what's the shit, shit sandwich you want to eat? Like, which one do you want? <laughs> the one with sprinkles? The one with chocolate sprinkles? The, the, the plain one? Like, you tell me. Yeah. And so every single one's going to have a flaw. Um, everyone's going to feel off. And you sit there and you make iterations, you have people play the controls, and everyone's got their own individual thoughts on it. Um, and you're never going to get um, alignment. And at the end of the day, it's your gut and your leads and, you know, your, your team. And, you, you know, you talk about it and you go, this is the one we're going to do. Um, I would say that one is certainly one I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I feel like um, there's sort of like there's the game design problems that just solve themselves because the game the game is done enough that it's just like, sorry, it has to work this way. I know you wanted to do it this way, but this is the thing that works in the game. And then there's like, guys, I just had this great idea and you can solve three problems if we do this one clever thing. And then there's like all the rest of them, which are like, uh, you know, we have to display 11 icons on the screen somewhere. And right. all the places for them suck. If we put them in the middle where people are actually looking, then it covers everything up. If we put them in the corner, nobody's going to see them. Yeah, but, we have the opposite. We need these icons to be somewhere where people are going to see them, but it doesn't distract like from them. So, like, where, how do we how do we let them know this information? Like, HUD design is a lot like that. I find. Yeah, and and at the end of the day, frequently there's just no. You can have actually have it in game. You can have it in engine. This is the A version. A version. This is the B version, and they can be equally disappointing. <laughs> But you have to pick one still. Yeah, pretty much. It's either that or you would convince somebody to ship an Atari Jaguar controller with their solution. <laughs> hmm. Make um, it a comeback. <laughs> um, I was wondering also about, you know, a lot of our work when we're, you know, designing uh, on our little team and trying to figure out, you know, what to work on next. You know, most of the time we're really only taking about two other people into account. 
I feel like there's not, we're not in a situation every day where there's like 30 people or like a hundred people. Like the thing that they're going to do is based on like the set of decisions that we're making. Um, and I'm just curious how that affects the pitch. Like you were saying earlier about like, Hey, we have this great thing, but based on what everybody else is working on right now, like there has to be a different something like we have to actually change the like the design like design and production start to feel like they're not super different in in a way or that they have to account for each other a lot more maybe okay are you talking about a situation where basically you know production reality say you can't do the thing you want to do yeah i think like i mean which and we have like we run into the baby version of that here too um but you know like oh this is this is what we should do. This is the right thing. This is clever. It's elegant. It solves a bunch of problems at once. It fits into the game theme, and all the pieces fit together. And we already decided to make this other part of the game, and now everybody that could work on this can't anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, so there's a little bit of the like gambler's fallacy in terms of our sucking cost fallacy of like. Well, I already did this other thing, so I have to keep it, which doesn't have to be true. I think it's our innate human instinct to be like, well, I built this thing already, so I must use it. And the people, you know, signing the checks, they definitely look at that, and they definitely think that way in general, I would say. Um, I understand that. Hmm. However, I'm also a proponent of throwing the baby out with the bathwater sometimes, um, and going the, going the quote-unquote right direction, if you think that's what it is, if you really have the convictions and vision behind you, it's harder, it's riskier, it can lead you to meandering if you do it too many times, so it's something that you should not be doing all the time. But at the same time, it's not a good idea to always be beholden to your first idea. Uh, I would rather look at, well, why did we end up fully developing this other feature when this other thing existed out there. Does that mean we did not vet our idea far enough? Did we get pushed into that? Did someone um, miss a step somewhere upon the approvals process? Like there's a lot of different ways that can go. Um, But once you're in that situation where you actually go, okay, we just can't do this part anymore. I mean, for me, one, I think probably hear this from many AAA developers, that's where you save save things for a sequel or you you jot a note down. You're like, Let's do this in the next game. Um, uh, right. No game has ever come out. There are things in the new Mass Effect that were not in Mass Effect 3 that I wanted, and there are things that will not be in Mass Effect Andromeda that will hopefully one day be in a Mass Effect title, right? Like, <laughs> that, that's just, and I, I'm sure every different person in that studio has their own version of that thought. So I, I think that's one way to handle it. The other way, if you wanted to basically, like, uh, talk about it is, is there a smaller version of maybe this holistic design? Is there a piece that you can carve off that does still fit in your game and makes it better, but doesn't accrue the entire costs of building the entire system? Oh, so if yeah. you need some like weird, crazy RPG experience system with all the, you know, um, leveling and the inventory and the character customization you all design decide, is there maybe just the character customization that you can do, or is there maybe just the leveling up automatically, almost Diablo style, where your stacks and stuff go up automatically and you don't put them into specific points? Um, is there something smaller you can do? Yeah. I'm curious if there was a, like a specific thing on Mass Effect 3, especially where you guys ran into that, where not no spoilers or anything for uh, Andromeda, obviously, but like a thing where 
it was kind of later in the cycle and you guys were like, we just figured out this is how you do this thing. This is how it's meant to be, but we have to like, now we have to pick our battles. Right. Um, yeah, I think one of those was the um, idea of power combos, which in Mass Effect 3 were basically like certain powers acted as primers and other powers acted as detonators. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, if you primed an enemy and then somebody used it, or you used the power or somebody else used the power in multiplayer especially, to detonate, it did a lot more damage and could even do like area of effect damage or hurt surrounding enemies. Um, and when you play on the gold and platinum level difficulties of multiplayer, if you want to get through it and do efficiently and well, you need to be using that that system. Um, that came in post-alpha, if I remember correctly. Um, I implemented it with another, a couple other people. Um, and we knew we didn't really know how to tell the player about it in any real way. Like, we kind of put some VFX on guys... We couldn't really say, like, we, we were way past our time on UI and all that stuff, so we couldn't say, this power oh. is a detonator, this power is a primer, these work together like this. We didn't have tutorials, so we just kind of made it this advanced functionality, and we're like, programmers will figure it out. And lo and behold, they did. Like, it's on the Wikipedia of Mass Effect, and, like, if they know every single thing. They know the exact numbers of damage, different <laughs> multipliers at different, like, difficulty levels, and they figured all that stuff out. Um, and we just made a call. We said, it's better to have this than not have this. And we can't properly build the UIs and the um, kind of onboarding that we would like. But this is an advanced enough feature that that's okay. And we would rather just have some version of it in. Uh, and if most people don't know about it, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Do you feel like, was that a thing where you guys, in retrospect, like spotted like the place where that should have come up like did that also produce like a like a production or process discussion about like oh at the multiplayer prototyping thing if we had done this then maybe like we we could have discovered something like it sooner or is it just like this is just the raw nature of making things and sometimes you think of really good ideas two years in because that's when you know everything about the project Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more of the latter. I think it was a case of, you know, we were finally able to sit there and just play multiplayer matches back to back to back like, over and over and over. And they were fun, but there was something missing at the higher difficulties. And we were like, OK, well, then how do we make this much more exciting or how do we step this up a notch or add extra depth? Mm. Um, because the combats in Mass Effect as a franchise, like Mass Effect 1's combats aren't particularly great, I mean, honestly, like if you go back and play them. There's a lot of roughness around it because it doesn't use a standard shooter model. And in Mass Effect 2, you can see the modernization into the shooter model happening. In Mass Effect 3, we tried to refine that. Um, and so I think us playing multiplayer basically allowed us to make our shooter model a lot better because we weren't just playing the single-player enemies who are maybe only going to come at you from one direction and stuff like that. We were trying to make a multiplayer that you could play for hundreds of hours if you wanted to. Like I know of people who've played for thousands of hours, which is ridiculous to me, but <laughs> people who've played that multiplayer, which just doesn't have a ton of options, frankly, doesn't have, like, it's not like it has 10 different modes or something. There's one mode and you have a bunch of different kits and you can level them up. Um, but hmm. those little things added depth. And I don't think we would have seen that had we, A, not been making and playing multiplayer regularly as a team 
and be and basically gotten to the higher difficulties where we're like, all right, well, let's check these out now, now that we've kind of mastered this part. Uh, I feel like Bioware has had a rep for a long time for for good quality of life, for kind of like a good design process, like for for AAA, I mean, for, for a creative studio in general, but for AAA games especially. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, especially coming from a studio that was running more on an older style of organization or an older method of producing games and going to some place that's maybe a little more forward looking or something like what are I feel like I'm about to ask like what's like the secret ingredient for like the special soup or whatever but like what are the things that you you're like oh man I'm so glad that we're doing this here uh, so I'll answer that in a couple different ways I'll answer that in a high level and I'll answer that like with specificity so at a high level, the difference is effectively, um, you know, Ray and Greg Muzaka, or uh, Ray Zestrek and Greg, uh, Greg, sorry, Greg Zestrek and Ray Muzaka, who were the founders of Bioware and were there when I started. Um, it was their inherent want that one of the core pillars of the um, company was uh, quality in the workplace, which meant, you know, not stupid, like, hours of crunch, and also quality in the products, which means when we have problems, we try to do things like throw more, find creative solutions to them, get more people to work on the product instead of everyone having to work double time, things like that. Um, and after they left, you know, Aaron Flynn took over, and um, I will say to a T, it felt like none of that has changed. Uh, it feels like the same marching orders from Aaron in a very positive and good way. Um, so I feel like people really care about um, the amount of hours you're working and the quality that you have, the quality of life, you know, if I got to take off for a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day, I can do that. And it's not a big problem at all. Uh, in fact, I worked from home today because I sprained my ankle this week and goofing around at a bachelor party like a dope because it's always going to be one drunk idiot. That was me. And so I'm hobbling around and I was like, I don't really want to, even though I have crutches now, like I don't really want to go all the way to like walk to work. I guess I need to be able to like, you know, put my leg up and put ice on it every like hour or so because it starts hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, no one's bald and I that I work from home all day. Like, yeah, there's certain things that I miss working from home. Like, it's just not as easy to do, but for a day or two, it's okay. Um, so I would say that's one thing. And that really comes out to people. Uh, the right people at the top level have the right view on what's important and they've made sure all of their lieutenants underneath them have that same vision so that when Ray and Greg go and retire, like they did a few years back, the next person up, Aaron, still has that same feeling. And I'm sure one day whenever Aaron takes off or does whatever he's, he ends up wanting to do in you know, retiring in life, whoever's the next up will probably still have um, mm. that mindset. And that's basically the culture of the studio. Yeah. So, so that's one thing. But on a more minute level, there's just a lot of little things that I wanted my previous studio to do that they didn't, that they did at Bioware. So, for example, the easiest thing would be in Mass Effect 3, we had box creatures when we built the AI. Like, they were built out of, like, literally square boxes, and we would animate the square boxes and get all the abilities in and try to find the fun there first um, before we built the model, the animations, the rig, and all that. Um, and in fact, when we didn't follow that paradigm, we often made ourselves do lots of rework, costly rework, things like that. 
and my yeah. previous company, everything had to look nice from day one. And things looking nice cost a lot. And then they become the antithesis of redo and iteration. Um, hmm. And so there's some people who are unable to kind of visualize what this thing could be at the end of the day when they're looking at this like really ugly thing. Um, I think a good designer can hopefully look at an ugly thing and see the steps of how it can be taken from that to having full model animation VFX sound um, you know, all the little audio cues that it needs to be a shippable character. We can kind of trust how to get from point A to point C or D in this case. Yeah, um, I feel like that's... management can't always do that. There's sometimes I've run into managers, executives, etc. They always don't, they don't always have that amount of imagination, let's say, or trust. And so that's, I ran into that a lot in my previous company and I don't at Bioware, which is, I'm, I'm very grateful for. I was effectively pitching at my last company a thing that was a lot like the thing we just ended up doing at Bioware. And I was like, oh, so I don't even have to fight for this. This is just what it, what, what we do here. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's actually uh, not as this like simultaneous act of like trust and imagination of like, okay, there's still like 10 problems we haven't solved, but we're all good at solving problems and have solved many problems before. And we'll get to them when it's the appropriate time. And right now we have to focus on these things. I don't know. I feel like I simultaneously like I need to work on doing it more, but some part of that has been part of the way that we work for so long that when I run into people who don't have that or don't, um, they don't build things that way, which I, I'm sure it's not the only way to build things, but it always throws me really, really hard. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to, you know, skin a cat, as they say. And so there's not one right way, but when you're building really expensive things, especially, um, you need to be careful where your wasted cycles are. So like design to me is like good design is like being a baseball player. Like someone told me this once and I think it's really smart. Like, you know, if you're hitting 300, you're doing pretty well for yourself, right? Like, you know, a 30% average is, is not bad for getting it right. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and so what we need to be doing is putting ourselves in a place where we can be throwing out more ideas quicker um, and deciding if they should live or die faster. And that to me is the, the heart of iteration. And so the heart of design to me is iteration. Um, mm. It's not ideas, it's, it's iteration, because iteration is the execution. Um, and so basically for me, I want to get to a place where I can throw out as many ideas, find the good ones, uh, and then iterate on those good ones until they become great ones, uh, and take the best ones and put them in. Not everything should go in that you build just because you built it, um, right? Like, not every frame of film that's shot should be edited in, right? Yeah. We, we want to take the best parts and piece them together. Um, and so I think we need to be comfortable cutting things. But the problem is is when you spend a million dollars on something versus 10000 on something, the way that cut looks to people above you is often much more difficult and harder to sell. Um and so it's incumbent on us to do things cheaply and quickly and kind of go kind of almost scatterbrain all around the map to find the right thing uh, versus maybe following a very linear path. I found that younger designers follow very linear paths in their thinking. They're like, well, I made, I made this thing and it doesn't work. I'm going to try this thing plus this new feature on top of it. Oh, that doesn't work. Well, maybe, and they keep trying to solve it from the same angle. Whereas a more senior designer, I find, 
we'll go like they'll go halfway down road A, they'll stop, they'll turn back, then we'll go down road D, they'll stop, they'll turn back, they'll go back the way they came, they'll stop, they'll turn back, and then they'll go straight forward down road B, and that's where the answer is. And look, and if you look at it, it looks like a crazy tree that's been drawn, but they've actually just like known when to stop, like take a step back, re- regroup, try something very different. Yeah, there's a weird uh I've been reading all these like um translated uh interviews with like late 80s early 90s Nintendo employees and uh like I'm sure they're like painting a slightly rosier picture than things actually kind of were back then, but I'm impressed how kind of like weirdly modern their studio environment was there. Um where like they do a lot of these things like that they, they had a heavy focus on prototyping, and their best designers all seem to share this like weird instinct for or appear to share this this instinct for like where's a dead end where's you know where's a more promising avenue that's really substantially different from the one that we're looking at, which I guess is another big like requires that same sort of imagination and like trust like long-term trust maybe right yeah and i mean and to me like you know iteration is the heart of what design is certainly but um there's also part of you especially towards the end where you need to become a trauma surgeon right you just like a mash unit and like you gotta get that scalpel out and you gotta start cutting things and you gotta (laughs) cut the smart things because you gotta ship you gotta deliver you're overscoped you always are there's always so much fluff. Again, it's kind of like the editing room, you know, in film, I find it in, in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. And so you also need to have somebody who has good instincts there, but isn't precious about their ideas or anybody else's ideas. And like, you know, you know we're removing this and it's going to be better for the game. And I know it sucks for all of us because we did a lot of energy. And if we took this all the way, it could be great. But that would be taking away the energy from this other thing that would be even better if we did properly. Uh, you're talking about sequels earlier and I'm wondering, I'm curious about how much, like, I can imagine there being kind of a, a, a struggle or a balance or something between like, oh man, we get to do another one. We can do all the cool things we wanted to do before for this huge established audience, uh, who are like into the thing that we do versus, oh, oh man, we have to make sure that everything we put into this doesn't break the other like 400 rules that right. we already made and you know in trauma surgeon mode or um even earlier in prototyping you know working on a any series or franchise where there's like a substantial amount of lore or feel uh that's pretty important to the appeal of the game you know not just i imagine not always using the coolest idea laying around but like the coolest idea that really genuinely has a place uh, right it's a weirdly phrased question but i guess i'm curious about like balancing on top of production on top of normal design concerns like all of the uh, in the case of mass effect like all of the mass effect that's already there yeah well we have three full games made right and then, then there's probably three full games worth of cut stuff you know some of it might have made into some of the sequels i wasn't there for mass effect one or two so i don't necessarily know all of those things mm. um but you, you've got three full games or stuff, so there's maybe stuff from game one that didn't make it into game two or three that you like. Maybe you're like, hey, should we revisit this? Or maybe there's a callback that you want to have. Or maybe there's um, you know, a certain feature you always wanted to do in three but just didn't make any sense because of the storyline or, or, or where the game was going. 
Um, and I, I think early on in the project, it is time to be idealistic. It is time to be kind of, you know, shoot for the, shoot for the moon um, and, and try really crazy idea, idealistic things because one might stick. And, um, you know, if you, you have those ridiculous, crazy ideas that stick eventually, you could have something special. You know, no Man's Sky just came out today, and I have not played it at all, but I've certainly been intrigued by it as somebody who works in sci-fi. And, like, mm. the idea of procedurally generated, like, galaxies to the point of there's, like, a quintillion or whatever it is. <laughs> so numbers that don't they make my head hurt, blacks, and words not work well. Uh, <laughs> like, that kind of thing is interesting. And, like, somebody had to have that vision or had to just kind of shoot for the moon or the sun or whatever it may have been in that clip case um and so you want to do that on any project i think um i think it's also a good time to you know there's always new people coming in on projects so sometimes you hear things that you've tried before um mm, yeah. so i've heard people pitch ideas that, I, I, that i've heard before and i'm like well we actually tried this and it didn't work out and here's why um and i think this is a dead end and here's why and i but, but i'm like my thoughts are always if you're a designer and you're passionate about something, you shouldn't prove it to me. Like, I will keep an open mind. I might tell you I don't think it's a good idea. But then it's incumbent on you to go prototype something and show me how I'm wrong. Um, and I will admit when I'm wrong, you know, if I, if I get it, if, I'm, if, I, if I say don't do something. Um, and that certainly has happened. Other times it's, oh, we did that before. It didn't work. But, you know, this is a different game and we don't have all these preconceived problems anymore. So, yeah, we could try to do that. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I can tell you from Mass Effect 3 that happened during development was because you could import your character from Mass Effect 1 to 2 and then from Mass Effect 2 to 3, you were an engineer in Mass Effect 2, you were going to be an engineer in Mass Effect 3, for example. Um, and there was one power that you had that was really good against synthetic units, which were the Geth, the robots, kind of, in our game, in our franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem was that for much of Mass Effect 3's development, there really weren't many guests in the game, and we kind of moved away from the guest as the bad guy. Um, and that power basically lost a bunch of its functionality um, because the other games, like half the game, you were fighting those enemies. So it's like, well, this power does, you know, 50% extra damage to synthetics. Well, when that's gone, all of a sudden, you know, you're yeah. like, well, I've carried this character over for two games, and now this power kind of isn't that great. Yeah, um, and it was one of the few cases where um, I remember talking to the lead designer and fighting for well, we should do something different, um, either change this completely or augment this power. Um, and we eventually ended up augmenting um, the power and changing the name slightly, um, so that it still did what it used to do before, but also had a little extra thing for against like organic enemies, um, so that basically it had utility in the game and you didn't feel like you wasted all your points. <laughs> the last 120 hours you took this character through. Um, and that's one of those really interesting things that you would only have in a game if you have to import and like keep the same character and you've kind of made that one of these major pillars. Um, but when you're studying a game kind of from scratch a little bit, uh, you maybe don't have some of those preconceived, like I'll say baggage. Uh, baggage doesn't necessarily mean negative. It's not yeah. necessarily negative connotation. It can be though. Um, but like you can kind of start fresh a little bit. Yeah, totally. I'm curious if there's ever a point where it's because like starting fresh can be terrifying because there's like no rules. 
I don't. I can't. I can't imagine what like early parts of No Man's Sky were like. But it's like, hey, we're gonna. We can do. We can do literally everything. <laughs> like we're like. Yeah, I mean, like, I can tell you from personal experience, it's terrifying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then there's like the other thing where it's like, yeah, you're like, oh, you know, I wanted. We we should do something cool with this, and there's space to do something cool with this, but we're gonna be changing something that people have like a multi-year relationship with, which sounds stressful to me. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have to make the right calls. You always know anytime you cut or change a feature from a franchise, you're going to piss some certain amount of people off. Right. Like there are people who did not like that mass effect Two went into more, um, shooter realms and acted more like what a gears of war would act from a, from a mechanics basis. Mm. Um, away from the RPG, like very, you know, roll the die behind the scenes RPG from the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand where they're coming from. Um, I don't necessarily agree with them, but I certainly understand their point. Um, but I think that team did an amazing job of going, okay, we made this game. What are some of the flaws? How do we fix it? Okay, we're going to turn away X number of people by doing this, but hopefully we'll get an even bigger number of group of people to come in. And I would say it overall works because if you look at that game, you know, it was a game that was like a 96 Metacritic and pretty much won every Game of the Year award that year. Um, I think Red, Red, that and Red Dead maybe won one of, like, Split, Split that maybe was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was the same year. Um, but, yeah, like, I mean, like, they did a very good job. And, yeah, there's still people who – I get tweets every once in a while. They're like, uh, I love Mass Effect 1. Never liked any of the other ones. I hope you make stuff like Mass Effect 1 again. And we, <laughs> right. and we listen to that. And then we, we go, well, are there – Things that now we can bring back, you know, uh, and I can't really go into details on that, unfortunately. Sure, um, sure. But those are discussions we at least have of like, well, what is, is there a way to re-engage the people who kind of opted out after one? Is there ways to re-engage the people who opted out after two? Are there ways to re-engage the people who only played three? Are there ways to re-engage people who never liked it to begin with? Um, and you have to care about all of those things both commercially and um, I think from a play style point of view as well, because usually those people are all asking for something slightly different from the game. Um, you know, it's kind of like um, the Bartlow's uh, MMO like player, right? You know, you have achievers, you have uh, scavengers, what is it? Explorers or something else. Yeah. I might, I might've goofed up on a couple of those. I apologize yeah. uh, for any good <laughs> students listening. Um, but like I think of the different styles of players and who they represent, um, and they're not all me, right? Like I'm not the only style of player, so I need to be able to design things for styles that are not me. Yeah, yeah. We the simplest talk- example would be like I don't like sniper rifles. Honestly, I do not enjoy playing with sniper rifles. So when I design a sniper rifle in the game and I work on it and I want to make it feel good, I go to the team people on the team who like sniper rifles, and I'm going, I go, how does this feel to you? Because I might hate it because I just don't like the class of weapon, not because it's not designed well. And but like, and I imagine I have to imagine that some part of you still is like the the term that I picked up from Chelsea How ages ago is like like an emotional need almost. Like for people who do love the sniper rifle, that's fulfilling some kind of satisfying thing for them. And right. so like, how can you find? the satisfying version of that for 
like what are other designs it starts to get kind of meta but like what are the other paths or the other designs that can address that need so like you know oh people really love sniper rifles but some people hate sniper rifles maybe you should put in something else that makes them all happy but it's just it isn't actually a sniper rifle but it's something that like does sort of addresses the same need that people have i guess yeah um you know we did things like the missile launcher multiplayer which is a one-shot giant amount of damage um and in many ways it's like a sniper rifle in that it's one shot and does a lot of damage mm. but there's also a big giant explosion at the end and it does even more damage than like the sniper a great sniper rifle would and it's rare like you have to like get packs of cards to kind of unlock the the enough ammo to use it um oh, yeah. but like sometimes people who are more visceral or who just want big kablooies they love that thing <laughs> yeah where wouldn't love a sniper rifle or sometimes you can take a sniper rifle and make these bullets just explosive and now you've made something that people like or sometimes you take a sniper rifle and you make it actually an automatic weapon or um you know not just one shot and they're like oh i like this though because it's kind of like a hybrid between this assault rifle thing i like but with the really long ranges mm-hmm. like oh, well what if you shot three three shot bursts and then you make kind of like these hybrid weapons yeah. and when you have a game that has god i have no idea how many weapons we shipped to mass effect 3 and plus <laughs> All that free DLC, there's got to be at least 60 weapons in that game, is my guess. I have no clue, to be honest. Jeez. But when you're talking about that, like, yeah, right, how many different types of weapons can you really have? And that's when you just got to start being creative, right? Yeah. Like, well, if a sniper rifle fell in love with an assault rifle and they made little gun babies, what would happen? <laughs> well, now I'm thinking of Overwatch, where you can snipe people with healing. Okay, <laughs> which I is like plot personally, but yeah, yeah, yeah. There's uh, one of the uh, I think one of the new characters has a healing sniper rifle. Yeah, so you really can, like, cool. You like, can shoot people back to life, right? So like, you completely subverts the idea of just damaging terrible things. Yeah, because like mechanically, I don't. I'm not really into like head clicking as a game mechanic or whatever, but I am into like the meta of um, like support role and distance support in a multiplayer setting. Like I think that's really engaging. And so I hadn't thought about shooting people back to life before, but now I'm like, oh man, I think I'm into that. Right. See, I'm curious, like making this giant, kind of this giant franchise with a big fan base and, you know, needing realistically, I think like emotionally as designers, as creative people, but probably also, you know, commercially and technologically and stuff like having to make a new thing. Like I think if this, if there's nothing new in the sequel, then everybody complains that it's too much the same. And if you change too much stuff, then not enough is the same. It feels, I don't know. It feels like a, like a super thin line to walk sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you you need enough to enough familiar to bring people along. Um, but also to not like, alienate people who maybe didn't play the ones before, right? So it, it definitely is a thin line. But what you do is you develop kind of like an IP Bible and like, you know, our wonderful writers and like smart editors and things like that have done that, mm. where they find like the look and the feel and the ideas behind Mass Effect. And so maybe you can come up with new ideas that still fit into those themes and those ideas and those uh, feelings. Um, you know, mm. there can be... There's a lot of different ways to come at that that franchise. Like I could take that Bible right to a, I mean, a new team that's never worked on a Mass Effect, and if they read it and understood it, I feel like they could make something appropriating, like close to feeling like a Mass Effect game if they had the right skilled people in there. 
it wouldn't be the game we would make. It wouldn't be the game you would make it with that with that um, uh, with that power. But that's that's okay. there's there's an infinite types of games that we can make in that universe we're just choosing one um i like to think in every different multiverse is a different version of our team making a different version of that game (laughs) (laughs) Um, but also like you just can't be scared of the past like mass effect 2 like i said one game of the year mass effect 3 one rpg of the year and some of the year awards as well i've been fortunate to be on some very successful products here um and i can't sit here and go well, we have to do better than that. Like, there might not be a better than that some, at some point. Like, like, you might not be able to do better than that in your career, in the, in the franchise, ever. Um, I had a good chat with uh, Harvey Smith once, who was the lead designer on Deus Ex, the original. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's one of my favorite games of all time. That's one of the best games ever made, I, I consider, and a lot of people consider and Harvey, I mean, was pretty young when he was the lead designer on that game, and he told me, he's like, I'm kind of resigned that I'll never make anything that good again. I mean, this is before Dishonored came out. And, you know, Dishonored, some people will probably say it's better, some people will say it's worse. I, I, I think they're apples and oranges, but whatever it is, is like if, if, if you only create success in your head, you have to beat the thing that you previously done, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Um, and so instead what you mm. should do is... What is the interesting, unique, awesome thing to do that you think fans would want or fans don't realize that they want yet? Because I think the best games have been the things that people didn't realize they wanted. Like, I didn't realize I wanted Red Dead Redemption when it came out. But holy crap, I wanted Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. I didn't know I wanted Assassin's Creed and be able to, like, just climb up buildings and, you know, do, like, you know, run around like a goofball everywhere. Um, but man, yeah, I loved it when it came out. Um, and those were games that were, while they're new IPs, weren't afraid to kind of take, um, a leap of faith. And I think you can do that within a franchise too. You just need a few more foundational pillars to always fall back upon, um, so that it still feels like it's part of your, your franchise. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, uh, pretty substantial, like gamer franchise from the last few years, um, Dark Souls, like the sort of reactions to, you know, the tiny decisions and the tiny changes, even when they've maintained like the feel, like, I feel like the, the feel and the presentations of the games are, is all like, is borderline obsessively the same, Uh, but just experiments with, you know, well, what if, what if, you know, somebody steps in and they lay the world out this way? Or what if we do, what if we link places together like this instead? And that produces these different dynamics. And as players, like, or like as an audience, I feel like you want to embrace the results of the process that created the thing that you fell in love with in the first place. You know, whatever the creative, you know, whatever the studio was and the mindset was that produced Demon Souls and Dark Souls originally, playing the new things that come out of that should be just as good. But yeah, there's something else going on too, where like sometimes we're like you're you're a human, so you can't help but like compare things that are similar. But like some of them just are better than others. Like some of the experiments, some of the perspectives on the same idea or some of the takes on the same idea, I guess are just going to be, or maybe, maybe, I mean, what is better? Is that just, it connects with more people 
or like it wins more awards or because like I have to admit, like at this point, there's got to be people like you're saying, like Mass Effect one is the best game ever and the rest of the Mass Effects aren't as good. And Mass Effect two is the best Mass Effect ever and the rest aren't as good. And Mass Effect 3 is the best Mass Effect ever, and the rest aren't as good. Like, those have to be, like, pretty substantial constituencies at this point. Yeah, you're probably right. Like, um, and so I just, I don't worry about that, I guess. I I think instead about, well, what can I, what would I want to play? What would be interesting? What would the other people want to play? What are the things that we haven't explored before that would be new? What are things that we have explored but we didn't go in depth on? What can we do? A better job with how can we redo this but like way better um mm. what themes that we can start bringing up what are um you, you know you start thinking kind of broad that way i think if you just start pigeonholing into what success is and that success is x number of units sold or x you know um score and metacritic or whatever it may be or x number of awards um i think you're you're being myopic with what the game can and should be um, it can and should be all of those things and it can and should be none of those things and it's this weird uh, like I, I don't mean that to sound like absolutely contradictory but I care about those things a lot and I also just don't care at the same time and it just depends on the moment of the day um, where I'm like mm. there's, there's times where I want to pitch an idea and I'm like wait this would cost a lot of money and it's super niche and only like a tiny bunch of people would get this this is probably not the right game place for this. But if I went to you, more indie developer working on a smaller team, maybe that's a good place to develop that idea, right? There's other times where something just m- might be something that was universally hated from a previous game. It's like, well, you know what? Pretty much we got <laughs> everyone said they hated this thing. Let's not do this again. Or they hated this character. Let's not bring them back. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. You got to kind of make those calls. Um I think that's what's good about having a team is everybody has a different perspective or if you ask everybody on a team to explain how that game would look in their head early, it'd be different. And that's usually actually a good thing. Um, It's a bad thing if you're in the middle of development and nobody can describe what your game is. That means you have no vision. But Mm. like early on when the vision is still being trying to explore, that's actually an okay thing. Um, So it all depends on the time, I think, and where you are in a project and the people you have. Yeah. I like what you said earlier about the um, about wasted cycles and watching out for that stuff because I feel like there's a, there's a kind of a contradiction in production, right? Where like I think I think it's pretty easy, like it's really easy to argue like no, we should finish this part now so that way it's done and we are concretely one step closer to shipping or whatever, but. You know, th- this is this is really true. I think on a smaller um, or more experimental project, but I, I imagine it has to be true on a larger project as well. Like if you don't know what you're shipping, you don't know what you're cutting, and like it feels weird that it feels risky to put off. You know, some of the big design decisions until later. But if you make them too early and you have to throw, you have to just have jettison a bunch of expensive stuff into space. Yeah, so so the, the, there's this back and forth that you have to have where you have some of the old and some of the new, and some like high risk and some things that are low risk, right? Yeah, like, you need to choose your risks appropriately. I think a good game, a good design, a good studio doesn't try to make risks everywhere. So you can have risks in the design itself, right, with the technical parts of the design, the ambitious parts of the design. You know, if, you know, if you went. 
make a quintillion worlds like No Man's Sky, well, there's a risk right there. How do I get to that many words, worlds loading in memory on a PlayStation? Like, that's a risk. Um, you have risks in teams. If your team has never worked together before, they're a new team, there's new leadership, there's new leads, things like that. You can have risks there. You can have risks in technology. You've never worked with certain tech before or the tech that you have doesn't support the things that you want. You, have, you can have risks there. You can have risks um, in in funding and things like that, right? Like business risks. So like, you know, can you stay afloat long enough to get, you know, your next check? That has to happen a lot more for indie developers than like uh, we're owned by Electronic Arts, obviously. But those are all different types of risks. And designers should care about all of those risks, actually, not just the in-game ones. Like you should care about all of those because it helps you make the in-game calls correctly. So it's important to me is everything should not be a risk. If you have too many risks, you're going to probably fail, um, right? Like you need to choose and manage and mitigate your risks correctly. So, you know, choose two or three major risks uh, to take wherever they may be. And some of those risks might not be things that you can get away with. You have a risk in your team because your team's brand new. You probably have that for a reason, and there's nothing you can do about that. It just is what it is. Like, there's no getting around it. Mm-hmm. Unless you find uh, the old people who, like, left and make them come back, which is doubtful. Um, you're just going to have that. Other things you can be like, well, you know, maybe I don't want a quintillion worlds. Maybe I only want a billion worlds. Like, <laughs> yeah. reduce that risk. <laughs> That's probably still a huge risk. <laughs> Classic that, compromise. Exactly. Um, um, but but then once you have those risks to me it's important to vet them out early in prototyping again we go back to what I keep talking about iteration, quick rapid prototyping figure out the basics and figure out if is there a basic version of this that you think can ship um, and I've mm-hmm. regularly done that with features and uh, unfortunately I can't talk about well I wish I could go into details here like I would have great stories but sadly no <laughs> um, sorry for the teaser um, but there's just things that you have to do and you just do them early and you're like okay I'm still scared about this but here's a path from here to there and I think it's going to cost this much and take up this much time and I think it's this amount of scary and like probably harsh Um and then you take that risk. And then some of the things that are known quantities, you can leave off to later. Like, do I need to build 8 billion guns? Um, or do I just need five that work pretty representatively well to start off a game? I would argue I just need probably four or five to be representative. And then we can make all the variations late if we have to. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's a known quantity. We know how to do that. We've built that before. We've done it in multiple games before. Multiple other games out there with like world-class like shooting mechanics exist that we can look at. It's not like we're reinventing something new here. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you don't want to fall yeah. too far behind, but then there's also another thing, which is risks in your process, right? Um, mm. And that is basically, well, do I know how to get from point A to point Z uh, and make sure all the pipelines of the art, the animation, the sound, the VFX, everything, all of those people know how to... to the cinematics, can everyone complete their tasks? So then what you do, um, like we did this in Mass Effect 3, for example, with our levels, is you take a couple levels early from like the prototype stage to the fully implemented, like what we call hardened stage, where we kind of call it, you could ship it if there was a gun to your head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's still things you want to do, but you could ship it if there's a gun to your head. 
Um, and basically we do that with a couple levels early to kind of find where the problems are with our processes. Like, oh, we don't have enough VFX artists. There's a bottleneck there. Or, oh, wow, sound did not have enough time to make a pass. Or, oh, cinematics is coming in like way late. We don't have enough time. But you do that with some different things to figure out where the problems are in your processes. You fix those processes up. And then, then when everything goes live, you know, in a full production later, and like everything's starting to hit that part, you, your ship dates are kind of confirmed, and, and you just got to go and you got to get things done. Well, then you've sussed out all the, all the risks or many of the risks in your um, process line, your production line. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's another way to mitigate risk. Um, and so for me, I like to think about risk in just all those different facets. And then think about as a designer, what can I be doing to either take on more or alleviate risk correctly? It's, it's, it's a zero-sum game almost, I kind of look at it. If you, t- if you add risk somewhere, you should be giving it up somewhere else. Like, there is too much risk that you can have. Um, and I think you'll, you'll burn up. I call it kind of shooting for the sun instead of shooting for the moon, right? You know, everything's a risk. You've, you've shot for the sun, and you know, Icarus can tell us that it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a pretty compelling argument for iteration outside of trying to find the right floating point numbers that make the plasma rifle feel cool, and right? Like like iterate on people and iterate on like schedules and iterate on all the things as a as the essential tool for reducing risk, but still getting to do new things sometimes. Yeah. And there's a, there's a way to look at it, um, a process called like the MVP model, which is like the minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. And so what you would do is you would go like, well, what's the minimum amount of stuff I would need to do to be representative of the entirety of what I believe this game to be? And you build all those little pieces in some forms or you stub them in or whatever it may be. And then some you take to like level two or level three or level four of development. And you leave some of the other ones at level one. And then you realize, then you can kind of look at your game more holistically and go, it kind of looks and feels like this. And then you start seeing where the holes and the problems and the realities are and you go, okay, let's cut off this whole area. Let's not even do this. Like, even though we spent, you know, a month on this feature, let's, let's call that a day. Let's put our other energy over here. This is having more value or um, bang for our buck or whatever it may be. Or so... Once you, I, I, that's why I like putting things in fast because once I can see everything, once I can play everything, even in rough states or as close to everything as we can get, yeah, then we can make better adjustments and ideas about what's the right moves for the game. Versus if you've made one little zone, you know, you're talking about an MMO, right? You made mm-hmm. one MMO zone. You made it amazingly and beautiful. You spent all your energy there. Well, did you think about all the different types of content that you would need to build in other zones that vary, that aren't all, you know, the same fine five, you know, horse horse underpants uh, <laughs> to get the to get the XP or get these three kittens out of trees? Like, did you think about the different types of zones that would have different types of quests? Did you think about how long this zone should last compared to all the other zones? Did you think about how much time you have to build all all the other zones so now they're all one quarter of the size of your first zone? Like. Well, and like just as a you part, like the games like done yeah. this, yeah. Well, I always got the horse underpants exactly, but something like that. <laughs> something. Yeah, I always get hung up on this idea of like 
emotional, almost like an emotional experience of the player where if you're not taking into account, like, you're like, okay, this level turned out good, this level turned out good, this level turned out good, but if nobody's keeping an eye on, like, what does it actually feel like to play all three levels in a row? And, like, what is, like, what is that experience and how does the pacing in one affect, like, what is, where's all, like, the weird spillover between these things and what's, like, the big overall, like, what's the arc? Yeah, so when I worked on Wolfenstein, there was no lead designer, which is kind of how I eventually became a lead designer because there was nobody ahead of me. Um, and so I was effectively the first person to just go through and start playing the game front to back. And, like, not just individually, like, you know, like upgrading my weapons and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I found a ton of holes and problems or just like, oh, there's this big action sequence and you get out and there's another big action sequence and we didn't have a wall in between correctly. Um, and so there's, there's, there's pacing issues. Yeah. Um, and it's because, you know, Team A was building level one and Team B was building level two and Team uh, C was building the hub world. And we didn't have a good enough overarching view of what the beats of the game were. And so we kind of stacked on top of each other. But by playing that stuff early enough, I was able to at least go, okay, can we make, can we force a narrative moment in between these two missions so you have time to cool down? It's this giant almost boss fight. And then you're going to go into this next, like, huge assault on a base. Can we just have, like, ten minutes to calm down? Um, and that wouldn't have happened if myself or somebody else had not played through early parts of the game and kind of gone through linearly. Now, it gets a lot more difficult, I would say, with something like Mass Effect or other RPGs or games that have a lot of different ways to go. Because you go, well, what are all the different builds you can take? What are all the different choices you could have made? What are all the different combinations of everything? And it's effectively... I can't even imagine how No Man's Sky was QA. And actually, like, I would love to know. Like, I heard they built probes to send them out into the world, like, you know, like automatically to check on worlds and stuff like that. Because you can't <laughs> really check that yeah. number of worlds. Like, it's literally impossible. Um, so you have to do a lot of that. And then you rely on some maybe other people, like, you know, QA and stuff like that to test a lot of combinations and use your hope you get there. Um, but you you want to be able to look at the thing holistically early and find those problems and then be able to um, kind of uh, react to them. And that's why I find the earlier you can get your thing together and just kind of play through the rough, terrible, dirty version. You've judged for the IGF before. And you've seen those games that are fully done, but they're ugly and unpolished, but like, there's a whole game there. Yeah. And you can tell, you're just like, this is going to be magical once all the polish and love is put into that, but like this core idea works and they've got something. Yeah. Like, that's kind of cool. Um, and so that's just kind of how I, I like to approach things. This is, this is going to be a weird question to ask because there's probably not a good answer, but I guess what's stopping other sort of big companies or big studios from, I guess, being able to do what, or to have sort of uh a production environment like BioWare has. I know, like, you know, from from work with GDC and some other stuff in the past, I know, like, quality of life gets to be a pretty touchy subject at a lot of studios to a point where, like, it's actually been... It was pretty hard for years to even get quality of life content uh, to be part of GDC. I guess the, the argument for crunch and stuff like that is always that you know, you got to do it to make something good and win awards or whatever. And I've always thought that Media Molecule and BioWare and there's a handful of other studios 
it's a it's a good place to be, and the things that uh, that get made there turn out really great. I don't know, like if you if like if you had a chance to sort of like if if you could magically change, I don't know, two or three things about process or the way people look at these things, like I don't know, like what does your dream dream game industry look like? I guess <laughs> let's end with a simple short question. What does my dream game industry look like? Um, my first off, my dream game industry is far more diverse in terms of its workforce and its types of games, uh, both on gender, um, ethnic diversity, racial diversity, LGBTQ, etc. So it would be less homogenous as a group. Um, mm. Right now, it is still, in North America at least, a white male-dominated field that feels like across the board. Mm. Um, and I think that leads us to make many of the same games or come from the same backgrounds and I think more diverse backgrounds um, can come up with more interesting products and ideas uh, and just new things that we haven't seen before. And I think we're starting to see that with television right now and actually I feel like television has actually gotten kind of ahead of some of the other like film and, and games in terms of more actors, more more black directors, writers, etc. Um, and there, there's some really amazing things coming out as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one part of my, my dream version of the game industry. Two is that there's a healthy, uh, there's a healthy place for the $100 million games, for the $10 million games, for the $1 million games, and the $100,000 games. Like, there's enough market share across all the different platforms that may exist that you can choose what level of engagement or size that you would like to be at and be successful there. Um, and success is probably still going to unfortunately mean like the 80-20 rule of 20% of the people make 80% of the money, but I think that's just the way capitalism and market economics kind of work naturally. Yeah. I, I don't know enough about economics to know if that has to be that way, but my instincts mm-hmm. tell me that that's kind of just a natural order of things to an extent. Um, but what I would like to see for the people who aren't in that 20 are that they're at least breaking even, they're at least able to sustain. Because when we talk about the quality of life things, well, Bioware has clout. We have financial clout and we have critical clout. Like we have Game of the Year awards and we've been successful. We're successful enough that EA bought the company many, many moons ago. Um, and so there's no risk. If I'm on a team and I'm like going paycheck to paycheck and like I only have enough money to pay my people for two more months, what, what choice do I have but to tell everyone to crunch? There is no third month. I don't know how to – if I can't get any more funding – um, or if I get more funding and then I just kind of lay them off later because the game is not going to be profitable. Like, there's a big problem with um, how we fund games in this industry and how profit mar- profits and profitability is hit. Um, and it's very difficult. And actually, what I love to see about the indie scene is seeing all the smaller games come out has reduced the need to sell, like, well, you don't have to sell 100,000 copies or a million copies to be successful anymore necessarily. Like, yeah. you can sell 50,000 copies if your budget was small enough and actually be reasonably successful. Like, depends on what game you are making. Yeah, you know? that's, um, for our And work, you can make the small thing, and you can do kind of what you did with Cannibal, frankly, and have it just become kind of this overnight hit because it kind of hit people in the right way at the right time on the right platform, even if that wasn't necessarily your goal. Mm-hmm. Um, breakout hits happen, right? Minecraft happens. Um, you know, Call of Duty happens. Um, at all levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think my, my, 
my my ideal industry is probably one that can't exist, but <laughs> it's one of diversity. It's one of market and economics allowing um, all types of sizes and types of games to exist, um, where we don't have to feel like we're cannibalizing each other um, just to make a game. And then, and then where we're actually pushing the artistic value of the medium. Um, so we can have, you know, our, our equivalents of Hollywood blockbusters, but we can also have our equivalents of the Sundance Film Festival. Um, and, and we have everything in between. Yeah. That sounds really nice. I like that one. We should do that yeah. one. Yeah, we can all have drinks and give hugs. Like, that'd be a nice industry. Mm-hmm.